0: My name is Ben Kearns, one of the pastors on staff. Really glad to be here. Uh, We're in the middle of this incredible series, uh, being good news to a world that needs it. And uh, this morning we're going to look at one of my favorite topics, which is how in the world do we be good news to a culture that doesn't even know they need it? Uh, For the church, we are self-righteously see ourselves as we have the good news, we have the right way to God, and so therefore we should be able to tell that to everybody around us. Everyone around us is like, please don't right that's kind of like our get up and so how do we do that so this morning we're going to look at how does the church supposed to engage culture and how do we communicate the good news which i think the church has something truly unique and amazing to offer to the world we just need to navigate how we do that a little bit differently. Um, traditionally, there's been kind of three different ways in which we've talked about culture. We have culture, we, we, we hang out here, and then we have like pop culture, and we think of culture, we think of pop culture, and there's really three ways we uh, engage. The first one is there's media that's reflective. That means like when you watch something or experience something, it speaks to you. It says something about your life. And one of my favorite television shows right now is This Is Us, and, uh, and this is Randall. And he, uh, gosh, he's an incredible character. And he, uh, and whoever wrote the show is like using Randall to, to heal my heart. He's driven and OCD, and, and he's just having all these issues and problems. And I'm like, oh, somebody else. It resonates with me. He's like way more handsome than me, but He's like, oh, I get it. And, uh, and because uh, in our family, when we watch it, I'm kind of like, He's like, I'm like watching Randall to see how he navigates things. My wife is always quick of going, see how nice he is to his wife? So that's my growing edge uh, with, with Randall and what he brings to the table. But, there's, but we all have media that we watch, uh, movies and music that, that, that speak to us. It gives us an added sense of understanding of how the world works. Then there's media that's just like an escape. Like we're just tired of the world. It's so freaked out. It's scary. And we just want to watch things that just make us not think about um, all that's going on in the world around us. Um, and so we find media that just goes, oh, I can't kill real people. So at least I can find joy in killing zombies and, uh, and really messed up people. So there's, we all have a media that's just kind of an escape. It's like, oh, I just want to check out. Turn my brain off and just, and just relax for a little bit. And then there's media that's directive. And what that means is the media is actually trying to communicate and trying to tell us something. These guys are, are Team 10. All of uh, us older people, we watch TV and movies. Uh, but younger people don't. They watch YouTube and they have people that they follow. And uh, Team 10 are all these kind of dirtball 20-year-olds. And uh, they're kind of reflective of like the most dirtball version of the 20-somethings. The bummer is all of our 14-year-olds are like, oh, that's how I'm supposed to live. And um, Jessica, it's not how you're supposed to live, Okay. So, um, just throwing it out there. But that's how media, that's kind of how media works. We kind of put it in those three categories. And then as Christians, we think, well, should I watch this or should I not watch that? But that is not culture. That is not the way in which we're to engage culture. That's just how do we watch media. What I want to talk about this morning is how do we as Christians actually engage culture? How do we actually engage Real human beings. And I've realized in my whole life it's been really hard for me to engage real human beings. Um, I'm not very good at making friends. And on top of that, I'm a pastor, which means immediately the second someone finds out I'm a pastor, conversations get wonky and weird. And it's just like, it's just not fun for me at all. But a couple years ago, I had this incredible treat. I got asked to be an assistant coach at my son's Little League team. And, uh, and it was great. It was like me and these dads who were helping love our kids. And it was just like normal. You know, I didn't have a caller And everyone wasn't thinking like, what's the pastor say? They didn't even know it was a pastor. I just enjoyed being with these guys. Well, it was really an intense league. I mean, really intense. And it was so intense that it turned out that us Little League coaches, every Friday after work, had to meet at La Piñata for trips and beers to talk Little League strategy. And it was intense. Every Friday after work, we're showing up a La Piñata and having chips and salsa and drinking beers. And, and I'm here, and here I am ready to talk about Little League strategy, you know, like when do you steal home? I don't even know because I don't know anything about Little League. And, uh, but what I realized really quickly is that it had nothing to do with Little League. It had nothing to do with Little League strategy. It was simply these guys needed a break at the end of the week before they got home and dealt with their wives and dealt with their kids and just needed to unwind, And it was like their little safe spot. And I got invited into it. I got invited into it with real life, normal people. And uh, and as we're like making friends and building friendship, I realized to my horror that I think the church has very little to offer real life, normal people. We have great stuff to offer the church and churchy people, but real life, normal uh, dads who are coaching their Little League and the questions they have, the anxieties they have, the way in which they're trying to understand the world, I had the sense of like, if any one of these guys showed up here on a Sunday morning, do we have anything to offer them? Are we, are we giving anything for them to, to, that's going to inspire them, that's going to help them in their real life? And I really wrestled with that for a long time, and I think, I mean, I think at our worst maybe we're not, um, but I hope more and more we, we are. And I think the reason why we do, we don't do a good job loving them really well is because they don't fit into the two categories of people that we love really well. So in Luke chapter 15, there's a really famous story. It's like the most incredible story in all of Scripture. Uh, Jesus tells this parable of the prodigal son. And it may be familiar to you, but basically the idea is this. There's this wealthy landowner um, who's supposed to represent God who is generous and wealthy and has all this property. And he has these two sons that work for him. And, um, and one son works well and he works hard and he does everything he's supposed to do. Um, but as he works hard, um, you know, his heart kind of gets cold. He's kind of mad at his dad, but he keeps trudging along and, and pouting. And, and that represents, you know, the good religious person. And then one of the sons actually had the guts and was like, listen, dad, your life sucks. You suck. I want all my money. I wish you were dead and I want to get out of here. And, uh, and the dad gives it to him. The dad gives him his share of the inheritance and he leaves. And the younger son, who had the guts, takes all this money and leaves. I'm sure the older son's like, oh, I wish it was that easy. Why didn't I do that first? Um, Sorry, as a religious person, that's what I think. So the, um, the prodigal son, right, he takes his money, he runs off into this distant land and goes crazy, right? Imagine you're 20 and you have a million dollars and it is wild. Team 10 on steroids, going crazy. And um, well, eventually the money runs out and, um, and so he ends up, um, all of his friends leave him and he ends up working on this pig farm and, uh, and, and wanting to, he's so, so starving, he wants to eat the food the pigs are eating right? It's this incredible story. And the son has this epiphany. He realizes that my dad's home, the servants at my dad's home do better than this. Maybe, just maybe, I'll go back home. I'll ask for forgiveness. I'll say, I just want to be a servant in your home, and maybe my dad will let me be a servant, and and I, and I can not starve to death. So he comes to his senses. He repents. That's the churchy word. He moves back towards home. And then this is the most incredible part of the story. The scripture says that God, um, in this picture, the father is at the edge of his property and he sees his son from a long way off. And instead of waiting for his son to get here and to grovel, the son runs out after him. He throws his robe on him, he puts a ring on him, he throws this giant party for him. He is so happy that his son, who was lost, who had stolen all of his money, that didn't bother him because his son was home and with him. And the, and the religious son, right, he's all bitter about it, and the dad goes to him and he cares for him. And in the church, those two people, we get it. If you're a religious person and you know about how to be in church, you've grown up in church, you know all the right language and right things, man, this is your spot. And we try our best to help church not be too boring and be authentic and be great. And if you're a prodigal and you went wild as all get out, but you've come back, you came to your senses, and now you're trying to raise your family and sort it out. Like, ah, oh, we got it. Welcome to everyone else who went wild in their 20s. And we get it and there's space for that. And we kill it for the religious people and for the prodigals. But for the people who've never been a part of our church, who've never been a part of the church, who have questions and issues and a whole worldview different than us, I think we might miss it a little bit. Because what would happen if the prodigal son actually stayed in his distant land? What would happen if he was feeding pigs and all of a sudden he looks up and he sees the pig farmer's daughter and he's like, wow, she's actually pretty. I'd rather be with a cute pig farmer's daughter than have to go back and deal with my dad. And so he ends up wooing her, falling in love with her. They make babies together, and it's super great. Now, what's amazing is the way that they would be making babies—well, it was normal. Sorry, that came out wrong. Their babies that they have um, would be raised different than everybody else in the distant land because the son was raised by the father. Right? All of a sudden, he'd be like, keep your elbows off the table and chew with your mouth closed. And everyone else in the pig farm's like, like, we eat how we want. But they eat. he has those rules because the son remembers how life used to be, how life was back when he was part of the wealthy land owner. But he raises his, his kid with this echo, with a, with a distant memory of how things could have been. But then generation after generation after generation, pretty soon everybody in this, in this lineage in the distant land would have no idea about the father's home about this incredible estate with a nice pool and all the food and all the land and all the rights and all the responsibilities that would come from being a part of the family of God, the kingdom of God, the people in the distant land would have absolutely no idea. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we need to realize that where we live here in Marin and increasingly all over the world and all over America for sure is that we live in a context that is more and more like the distant land and less and less like the people living in the Father's kingdom. The people that we interact with, the people that we rub shoulders with, are people who have no memory of Christendom. They have no memory about the Christian story. You can't make stupid jokes about the Apostle Paul or Jesus or Deuteronomy. There's no even good jokes about Deuteronomy. I don't know why I said that. But, you know, they, they have no idea about any of that stuff. You can't talk about um, the language of God, the, the, the story of God, the values of God. It just makes no sense. If anything, all they have is that they, they have anger against the people of God because of our culture. But they don't have anything, any warmth or knowledge of the story of God. And so we need to realize that we live in a context culturally where nobody has any touch points with the story of God. And so when we want to be people who share the good news of God to people, we need to realize we're not talking to the older son in the prodigal story. We're not talking to the wayward son in the prodigal story. We're talking to people from a totally different worldview. So the question for us, the challenge for us is as a church, how do we present the good news? How do we share the good news? How do we be the good news to a world that doesn't even know that we need it? So we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17 or grab a Bible right in front of you because we're going to just look through this whole chapter really quickly. The Apostle Paul, who is this incredible missionary, he was a a Pharisee, he was a teacher of religious law, he becomes a Christian, he knows the the Torah backwards and forwards, and he believes that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that Jesus' life and death and resurrection are now bringing good news to the whole world. Paul goes out and wants to share that everywhere he goes. So in chapter 17, he goes to three separate places. The very first place he goes is Thessalonica. So in chapter 17, verse 1, it says this. When Paul and his companions had passed through these two towns, I don't know how to pronounce, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus that I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So Paul, as his custom, he goes to Thessalonica and he goes to a Jewish synagogue. And what's so great, he goes in a Jewish synagogue. It's his home. He's a Pharisee. Everything that happened in a Jewish synagogue, he knows. He knows the songs. He knows the prayers. He knows the stories. He knows how to read the scrolls. And so he opens up the scrolls and he tells them from their starting point, from their religious worldview, he explains that this Messiah that they're looking for and longing for has come. And that Messiah is Jesus Christ and talks about his life and his death and his resurrection and how that is truly good news. It's awesome. It's like um, way back um, when I first started doing youth ministry, um, the older people who taught me how to do youth ministry, they used this um, way of evangelism called the Four Spiritual Laws. And it was this little booklet. It was a really simple way to to share the gospel. And it was simply like this. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. You're a sinful dirtbag and separated from God. Um, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you accept Jesus into your heart, then you get to live ever, forever after, happily ever after, right? That's kind of the four spiritual laws. And it's great. And it, and it was so great. Uh, Bill Bright came up with it in the 40s, and it was so revolutionary because he was talking to all these prodigals, all these people who grew up in the church and left the church. He gave language to help these prodigals make their way back and to be part of the church family. But we live in a world, if you talk to any friend outside the church who's not grown up in the church and said, you're a sinful person, that's not going to go well. They do not see themselves as sinful people. In fact, that would be so offensive for you to say that to them because that is not part of their worldview. Being sinful is so judgmental. And we all have situational ethics in our own morality. And for you to put your morality on me is not okay. So talking about sin is not going to work. Even talking about brokenness in the church, we love talking about brokenness. We are broken, and yet God, through Jesus, heals us and redeems us and saves us for something else. But if you talk to people outside the church, we're not broken. I mean, the world is broken. The world done, has broken us, but we are not broken. And anything that we've done that's broken, actually, we don't regret. It's part of our story. It's what makes us a beautiful butter, butterfly and makes us unique. And so when you try to convince someone that you're broken and that you need Jesus, it's going to be crickets. They have, nothing, they have nothing they want to hear from you. So we have to be people who find a new language, a new hook, a new starting point. So Paul, when he goes to Thessalonica, he's reasoning them from Scripture. But that's not our context. He goes on to Berea in verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went again to a Jewish synagogue. And now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those of Thessalonica, for they received the message with greater e- eagerness and explained the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying is true. What's amazing is Berea is different than Thessalonica. You go to church in Marin, it's different than going to church in Atlanta. Like every context is different. They go to Berea, and what's incredible is the people in Berea are brilliant. They love scriptures. They have like, they've had a reputation that they knew scripture better than anyone else in the region. And you just had to imagine how fun it was for Paul. Then, well, then we're going to not, we're going to go after it. We're going to use the best logic, the best biblical debate, and they would just go around and around and around. But ultimately, sharing that Jesus was the Messiah and whose life and death and resurrection was good news to everybody. Well, then finally, we get to Athens. And what's interesting about Athens is when Paul goes to Athens, where's the first place that he goes to? Synagogue. Oh, thank you. Someone, right? Pay attention. I love it. After the, after the standing ovation and everything. Um, okay. He goes to the synagogue. Now, the reason Athens, you may be not sure about that, because there's a, later on he engages culture in a different way, and people really love how he does that. But he begins by going to the synagogue, opening the Scriptures, talking with them, about who the Messiah is. Shares about his life, death, and resurrection. Well, in verse, um, verse 22, it says this, when Paul stood up in the meeting of the Aragopagus, this is after he goes there, he then goes to where all these people share ideas. So all these people naturally share these new ideas. Paul then goes to the Aragopagus to share these new ideas. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I have even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And so you're ignorant of this very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And of course then goes on to explain how Jesus is the Messiah and how his life and death and resurrection are good news. Now what's incredible is when he does and he shares that, he doesn't get, people. there's not a revival that happens. 3,000 people don't become Christians. The the Pentecost doesn't show up and the tongues of fire show up. Everyone goes, what is this strange teaching? And they kind of like boom out of town. A couple people think, maybe I want to know more about that. Because here's what's interesting. The story and the gospel of Jesus Christ is really weird. And it sounds really weird. And so if you want to share it to people who have never heard about anything of it, it's going to be weird. And so if you expect people to go, oh, that makes sense. I'm going to be a Christian and I'm now going to live like you. That is never going to happen. And so I love Paul, who's the most incredible missionary. He shares this thing and nothing happens right away. And so I think that, could, that should give us good news. When we want to share our lives and share the good news with people who have no touch points with the gospel, then we just have to know that it is a very long process. And we get to have grace for them and grace for ourselves. And we just get to show up like what Art said and simply be planted and to communicate God's love through other people. So the question is, what is the gospel? If we can't talk about the four spiritual laws and we can't talk about um, being broken and Jesus heals us and redeems us, what maybe is a way in which we can communicate the good news where people who have no touch points with Christianity might be able to at least put their toe in the water and inch towards Christ and have a further conversation? And I think one of the, the greatest uh, examples and illustrations of this is the story of adoption. Now, this isn't a new illustration of salvation. Ever since Paul wrote Romans and Ephesians, adoption was part of of the story. It's one of the many pictures that we talk about what salvation looks like, being saved looks like. And really simply, it's this. There's someone who's born over here who has no family. They have no parents. They have no story. They have no place of origin, right? On this side over here our parents, and they have no kid. And they think, man, we have this life. We have this home. We have these values. We have these resources, and we want to share our life, our culture, our resources with somebody else. And so adoption is simply taking a child, a baby, right, who has no history, no parents, none of that protection, none of that stuff, and then grafting then them and adopting them into the family. And what's incredible about the story of adoption, when you're adopted into the family, you are a daughter or son of that family forever and ever. You get all the rights all the responsibilities, right? If you're gonna pay for your own biological kid, you adopt a kid, um, that kid then gets, they're gonna get their college paid for, right? The the culture that your family has is now extended to this new family. Now, what's incredible is most people, when they adopt, when they want to adopt, we want to adopt little cute babies. I mean, A, babies are cute, so that's helpful, but I think there's this deeper part of us that we want to adopt babies because babies, they're, they're, they're clean slates right? But you can take a baby, you adopt them into your family, and from the very beginning, you get to help grow them up in the life and the culture of your family. They may look totally different from you, but they know how. They know your culture. They know how to sit around the dinner table. They know your family jokes. They know your family systems. They know everything about your family because they're being raised from a baby into the family of God. And we think oh, when people become Christians, right, they go from, having, from being adopted into the family of God. They go from having kind of no spiritual covering, no spiritual authority. Um, they've just kind of living life by themselves, however they want, in a distant land, and going, f- going from there to now being grafted in, adopted into the family of God. Doesn't matter their background, doesn't matter their story, doesn't matter where they've been, their issues, doesn't matter anything. What matters is they become in, grafted into the family of God and now get all the rights, all the responsibilities of a true daughter and son of the king most high. It's a beautiful story and it is awesome. But I think what happens is when we think of adoption, we don't we think of the cute little baby when someone becomes a Christian, they're going to be the cute little baby who are going to come and figure out what it means to be a Christian. And that's not the case. I think the better picture is this picture of foster adoption. People who do foster adoption are like the all-stars of Christendom. Doing foster adoption are the people who say, I have this life, I have this family, I have all this generosity of my heart and resources, and I want to extend that to somebody who doesn't have anything. And you know what? I don't want to just extend it to the little baby, but I see these awkward 14 and 15-year-olds who have spent their entire life in the system who don't have any connection, any parent, any um, any care, anyone who's seen them for the long haul, I'm going to take them and I'm going to graft them in and adopt them. And they are going to be just as my biological daughter and son are going to be. They get all the rights and all the the resources that come from being part of our family. People who do foster adoption, all-stars. Well, this is my friend Brett, and he didn't quite do foster adoption. But him and his wife decided to adopt um, three uh, Sudanese refugees, Um, So these three kids, they grew up in the Sudan. Uh, It was war-torn. They got separated from their families and ended up in America, and they adopted them. And talking with my friend Brett, it's an incredible story. And I'm, I cannot believe that I know a real-life person who loves God so much. And he's telling me the story. and I'm like, praise God. Like, you're this incredible, awesome Christian. And he's like, I know. When my wife and I said, we're going to do this, we were like, praise God. We're these awesome, incredible Christians. Look at us. We're going to open our home to these people, and it's going to be awesome. And we're going to be this testimony of God's love and God's grace. And then they came, and they wrecked shop. They decimated his house, they decimated their school, they decimated their family. How in the world do you take four, these three teenage Sudanese refugees who had the craziest life that you and I could never get our heads, get heads around and then drop them in suburban San Jose and be like, good luck? It is crazy. And what's so incredible and why Brett is one of my heroes is because they knew, I mean, I, in a jokey way, but they knew what they were getting themselves into. And they knew that they had to have a whole different spiritual um, bandwidth, a whole different level of character if they're going to actually make space for these people who don't know anything about America, don't know anything about San Jose, don't know anything about their family, don't know anything about their culture. And if they're going to help them figure out what it means to be a part of their family, they were going to have to have an unnatural amount of grace and latitude and bandwidth for these people who don't know one thing about what it means to live in San Jose and to be part of this guy's family. He is my hero. And I love this picture because I feel like if we genuinely want people outside the church to know and love Jesus— and they're going to actually come to our church, and they're going to put their toe in the water and move towards Christ, then we as Christians need to recognize that those people coming, who are coming and figuring this thing out, are having such a different starting point, have such a different life experience, have such a different way in which they understand the world. And if we say, no, you have to look like me, and then you can know Jesus, then we are doing it all wrong. So we have to be people who share the good news of Jesus, who make space for any and all people to move towards Christ, to be guests in the home of God, and maybe by God's grace come and know the goodness of Jesus as their heavenly Father and be adopted in as a daughter or son. That would just be incredible. But everywhere along that, uh, that, that process, we as a church have to make space for people to figure it out. So I think there's two things that we have to do as Christians. We have two main tasks, and here's one of them. We have to leave the 99. And we live in Marin, so this isn't that much of a a challenge for us because the second we leave these doors, we don't know one other Christian in our world. So it's mostly normal for us. But we have to see where God has planted us is where God has planted us. Our school, our work, our family, our neighborhood, those are all places that God has uniquely planted you to be God's agent of goodness and grace. I love all these passages when Jesus talks about the 99. He's like, they're fine. They're fine. When all the Christians get together, they're going to figure out. It's fine. Don't even worry about them. But there's a lost sheep. There's that person in your world that God is running after and God wants you to run after. And God wants to, us to develop a heart that we are people who leave the 99, who go, okay, we got this thing, but I need to invest in this person and to love this person and to care for this person. And to, everything about us is making space to love and to care for them. And by, maybe by God's grace, they might move closer to Christ. So that's one. Personally, we have to leave the 99. The second is what we corporately have to do, which is a little more challenging, that we corporately have to create a unique Christian culture. Now, this is different than the old-school family Christian bookstores and having little Precious Moments dolls and a DC Talk um, album and, you know, a beautiful candle with a nice little verse on it. Like, those are all great things, but that's not the Christian culture I'm talking about. I'm talking about that we create a culture that is distinctly Christian in the highest sense of the word. That the goodness of God, the values of God, like the, the, the things of God, that when people come and they come to our church, they experience the best of what God has to offer. God's goodness, God's grace, that every single person, every single human is worthy of dignity and honor and respect and fascination in the way that God has made them. That we actually want to open up our lives and our homes to them and their story. When they tell us our stories, our face don't not like, oh my goodness, what are you doing? Like we have to guard our face. We have to be people who make a distinct culture. We're like the daughters and sons who have already been adopted in the family of God, who now as the foster adopted kids show up, we help the parents set the bandwidth, set, I mean, set the, uh, set the culture of how the family is supposed to be. And really quickly, there's four ways in which we should do that. One is that we simply are called to model Jesus Christ. Jesus is so incredible. The Christian story is so incredible because we believe that God, the most holy, powerful, um, awe-inspiring, fiercest, creative thing in the whole universe— humbled himself, became a human being in the form of Jesus Christ. At Christmas time, we celebrate it. It's Matthew chapter 1. It says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The Christian story is so unique because We're not religious people trying to earn God's favor, but we believe that God actually longs to be with his people, that Jesus modeled that to take on flesh, flesh that of a servant to love and to care for people. All of you guys, all of us have been planted somewhere. And you, if you're a Christian, have the Holy Spirit inside of you and God wants you to be a Jesus incarnate to that person, to be the extender of God's love and God's grace, even on the soccer field, which isn't even a real sport. Okay. Secondly, it's biblical. We can talk later about that. Okay. Secondly is this. Do not be afraid. There is no place for fear in Christendom. If you in your heart are so worried about the culture war or the state of the world or how things are going, I hate to break it to you, but it is over and we've lost. If you're trying to protect your family or your heart from how evil and awful and crazy the world is, then you are in the wrong place. I'm sorry to say. We live in an area that is post-Christian and every single person outside this, this building views and sees the world dramatically different than how Christians view and see the world. And so there's no place for fear because here's the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been in this incredible um, story that has worked in every culture and in every part of the world through all of human history. This isn't the worst part of all of humanity. And this is, this, we got it really easy. So why we're so fearful? Like we need to get our hearts in check and go, there's no place for fear. Because what happens is when we live in, as fear-based people, we do really stupid things. All of a sudden we lock the doors, we point the guns outside, and we are the exact opposite thing that God has called us to do. Fearful people ruin everything. Fearful people say and do really selfish and messed up things. It's, it's fear. It's normal. But we need to get in touch with that. We need to die to that. And we need to cut it out because it is not helping the gospel move forward. Timothy says this, I mean, Paul says this to Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline. We are are ambassadors of the good news of Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. We are part of the body of Christ. We are prophets and priests, the people that God wants and longs to be agents of good news and of change. We are those people. That is our mantle. We are not frail, timid little flowers that the world is going to crush. The world is broken, and it needs people to bring hope and grace and love. And if we're fearful people— That's not gonna happen. Third, we actually get to set the table you know Thanksgiving is coming, and it, what's interesting is when people come to Thanksgiving, it's just like it's the same people that are normally in your life, but Thanksgiving is incredible. The, it's so beautiful, the food and the flowers and the plates, and everyone gets dressed up, and it's like, it's like your family at its best. Even with your family, you're like, how are we all together right now? Because normally you all fight, and it's awful, and you eat on paper plates, and you chew with your mouth open, but at Thanksgiving, everyone is so great. It's your family at your best. Oh, excuse me. Just thinking about my family. Okay, good. Okay, so we need to recognize that church, when we gather, the gathered group of Christians, we have to kind of recognize that we kind of need to be on our best behavior. If you're a Christian and you love Jesus and this is your church, you don't need to come and be faked. I'm not saying come and dress nicely and just put on a happy face, but I'm saying we have to be on our best behavior in the sense that we have to put on the values That God has for us at our best. We are the people who extend love and extend grace and extend mercy. We are the ones who look around the room and look how people are doing and care for them, see them, interact with their stories. We set the table and we create the culture. And what's crazy is we live in a world where no one is going to come to know Jesus because we have better logic than them. No one is going to come to Jesus because we can emotionally manipulate them. Those two ships have sailed a long time ago. The only way people are going to know and be even are willing to consider Jesus is if they actually interact with Christians who are really Christian, who love them, who make space for them, who treat them with dignity or are interested in their story. And we as Christians who come and gather at church, we have to kind of put our best, our best foot forward and be our best Christians. And if we're not being Christians, this is what's so great about Christianity, then come and be like, I'm totally struggling. My life's falling apart. That's being your best Christian. Being dressed up and being jerky to each other, that's not it. All right? Um, In Romans it says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We don't conform to the pattern of this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to be transformed people and create a transformed culture. And lastly, we cannot forget to actually share the good news, And this is a real challenge because this isn't going out with the Four Spiritual Laws booklet or telling their, your friend that they're going to burn in hell and here's how to not escape that or how awful they are. That's not what I'm saying, sharing the good news. Sharing the good news, like this is why it's challenging because it should be the good news for you. Your story should be able to be a place. You should be able to look back in your story and see the, your story and go, oh my goodness, God has had his hand on my life. Even before I even knew and recognized God, God had his hand on me. I walked through this season and God cared for me, healed me, transformed me, saved me. Like our story has to be close to what God is doing with me as well. This world is in desperate need of hope and love and grace. Everyone is dying for it. And if you actually share and have love and hope and grace, then you are different You're not going to be different because you swear less or don't drink. That's not what's going to make you different. What's going to make you different is the way in which you interact and care for each other. In 1 Peter 3.15 it says this, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I love it. The the, the assumption is that people are going to want to know what about you is different. It's not because you have a cool Jesus t-shirt on. What's different about you is that you have hope. This world is dark and depressing and messed up. This world is not our world. And so when we are people of hope, when we have people who offer hope and grace, they're like, man, what is that all about? Then we have an opportunity to use our words to share the good news of Jesus with gentleness and with grace. And so here's my challenge for us, is that we would be people who would communicate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in word and deed. The deed thing we're slowly figuring out. The word thing we're slowly figuring out. All of it we're slowly figuring out because our culture is changing so rapidly. But if we're going to be good news to our culture, then we have to recognize the culture in which we live and love them and love their world, understand them. And we also have to have a distinctly unique Christian culture in which we gather and which we invite people to. And it's challenging and it's complex um, but that's what we're going to be running after as a church because this world is in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus. There's so many people who have no identity, who have no sense of self, who have so much anxiety and depression and are running around aimless because they don't know their true value or that someone who truly cares about them. And we have an opportunity to invite them into the family of God to experience the best of who God is, to be cared for all the rights, all the responsibilities. Let me pray for us and then we'll we'll wrap up our time together. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I thank you that you are so patient and generous with me and with us as we try to figure this out. The rate in which culture change and the world around us is changing, it's causing our head to spin, God, but I pray that we would not be people of fear, but we would see this as an incredible opportunity to be people who are ambassadors of your good news and of your grace. Grow our hearts to the people that are in our life. Give us patience and long-suffering for people who are coming and figuring it out. And give us good mirrors to see back on us the way that we are still totally missing it. For when we want to create a unique Christian culture, God, may we be uniquely Christian in our humility and in our grace and in our hope. May it be shocking to people, for we will be such a far cry from our self-righteousness and uh, and inauthenticity that our church uh, so often, or that church so often gets a bad rap for. We love you, God, and we thank you for the opportunities to try to work all this out together. You're an incredible God, and all of God's kids said amen and amen.